Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com, WISE dot com. And my guest today, Julia Galef, is the author of a really great new book called The Scout Mindset. Um, I was a guest on, on her podcast, Rationally Speaking, recently. We had a conversation of epic length on that one. Uh, today, I tried to give you something more normal weeds length. Uh, but, you know, we talk about the book. We talk about uh, the fine art of arguing on the Internet, um, how to think better, how to maybe even argue on the Internet better, um, why we both don't like debates. Um, it's really good conversation. I learned a lot from the book. Um, I think you'll learn a lot from listening to uh, me chat with Julia. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today is Julia Galef. She is an author, podcaster. I was on uh, her show, Rationally Speaking, recently, but she has a new book out that is called The Scout Mindset. I think it's really cool. Uh, so welcome to the show. Thank you. It's so great to be here. Yeah. So what what is what is the scout mindset? Who are the scouts? <laughs> yeah. The scout mindset is the title of my book and also my term for uh, the motivation to see things as they are and not as you wish they were. So it's part of this kind of framing metaphor of the book in which I say that humans in general by default are often in what I call soldier mindset, which is the motivation to defend your beliefs or defend things that you want to believe from any evidence that might threaten them. And uh, and the metaphor comes from really just how we talk about reasoning. Like we talk about supporting our beliefs or buttressing our arguments or defending our beliefs as if it's, you know, a fortress that we're defending. And we talk about shooting down other people's ideas or poking holes in their logic. It's all very militaristic and focused on on winning and defending. And so that's where the term soldier mindset comes from. And then scout mindset is my alternative to that uh, because the scout's role is not to attack or defend. It's to go out and see what's really out there and put together as accurate a map of the territory or of a situation as possible. Um, and, you know, the scout might hope to learn that there's, a, you know, that, that there's a bridge across the river or that the road is passable. But above all, the, the scout wants to know what is actually true. And he doesn't want to, you know, draw a bridge on his map where there actually isn't a bridge in reality. So that is scout mindset, basically trying to be intellectually honest and objective and just curious about what is actually true. You know what? I, I, I like the metaphor because it's a little... Um sympathetic to the soldiers who you're criticizing. I think oh, if you if you think about it, that, you know, if you are a soldier, right, and you're defending a fort somewhere, it's like, it's not helpful to have one of your coworkers being like super defeatist about it. And like, oh, there's no way we can win. We're all going to die here. Because, right. you know, it's like, you're in the army. You have to follow orders. You've been told to defend the fort. And so like, you want people who are going to, pitch in and buck you up. But you also really do want like the scout who went out to like tell your general, this is not a defensible position. Like everybody should leave. Yeah. I, I am really glad that you kind of see the sympathy that I was trying to give towards the soldier, because even though I don't, I, even though I, I tend to think scout mindset is a better mindset to be in than soldier mindset in most, if not all situations, I do have a lot of sympathy for why the soldier is doing what he's doing. Like I have a lot of sympathy for why we instinctively are so often inclined to 
try to defend our beliefs against evidence that threatens us. And I, I really tried to dwell on this in the book because I think it's too easy to just say, well, this other way of doing things is better and to not show that you've really understood why things are the way they are in the first place. Um, and I think there are plenty of really valid things that we're trying, that the soldier is trying to protect, like our ability to get through our day <laughs> and our ability to feel good about ourselves or the world or our ability to fit in with our peers, our tribe. And I think those are very important things and a central part of being human. Um, so I, I want to show that I understand why the soldier is doing what he's doing by defending the beliefs that get, get us these goods, while also arguing that I think we can get those goods with scout mindset instead of soldier mindset. Well, and you, you talk about the idea that basically like the shape of human life has has changed, right? right? And that in a traditional society, most people actually had very little ability to like alter what situation they are in. Right. So just like learning to get along with people is like a pretty reasonable way to live your life. Like if there's no place you can go, if you have no ability to actually change the situation, but that like we now don't live in a society that's like that. That's right. Yeah. I So this is a somewhat speculative argument that I'm making. I'm, I, I, point out that our brains seem to underweight the value of scout mindset, underweight the value of seeing things accurately and having an accurate map of reality. And so this is my attempt to speculate about why that might be. And I think a plausible argument is that the world in which our brains evolved is quite different from the world in which we live now. And one of the core ways in which it's different is that we just have so many more choices to make now and so many more opportunities to improve or change our situation uh, compared to what we had, what our ancestors had many tens of thousands of years ago. You know, we can we can choose where to live. We can leave our community and find a new one if we really don't like the community we're in. Uh, we can, we have to choose which job to take or who to marry or whether to marry at all or whether to have kids, how to invest our money, which medical treatments to try. And, you know, these choices, you, you can make your life worse off with these choices, but you can also make it better. And so the value and maybe the key unstated premise in all of this is that having an accurate map makes it possible to make these choices better than if you didn't have that accurate map of where to go and how to get there. And yeah, so the, the value of having that accurate map is just much greater now than it would have been in the past when you were kind of stuck with the life you were born into and the the role you were born into and the tribe you were born into. Um, you didn't really have all of these choices to make to give you the option of improving your situation. Do you know Fiddler on the Roof? I, I've watched it many, many times. That was a, a, a classic on, on our family's VHS uh, tape shelf. <laughs> me too, me too. I, that, that's what I thought of, actually, when when I was reading that part of, <laughs> of, of your book, right? Because like that's really what Fiddler is a about is the transition from a world in which people like Tevya and Golda, uh, they didn't have any choices in life. So applying more rational scrutiny to the situation in Anatevka would not necessarily have helped them in any way. Right. But then like, you know, it's like modernity is arriving and they have kids and you can you can go to the city, you can move to America. And so it's like it's much more valuable to actually think this stuff through. Like, what should I do? What are the real facts here? And that's, you know, I mean, that's that's what the book is about. So so what do you have to do to be a scout? So I guess I'd say the first most important thing is just be more self-aware because we tend I mean we tend to just think we're scouts for the most part. There are some people who are proudly soldiers, like they will answer. There's this metric in cognitive science called the active open-mindedness scale. And it just asks you basically, what do you think good thinking is? Do you think people should change their minds when they encounter evidence against their beliefs? And you might assume that, of course, everyone would say yes to these questions. And it's just that we're mostly not great at living up to those standards. And that is true. But it's also true that a lot of people answer no to those questions and just mm -hmm. say, no, it's much better to stick to your guns and just have things that they're your core beliefs and you never waver for them. So point being, even though most or lots of us think of ourselves as scouts that we're reasonable and rational and objective, um, soldier mindset is just, it's just innate and universal. And when you start really paying attention, you'll notice how often you're in soldier mindset. I still notice myself being in soldier mindset all the time. You know, I'll notice, like when I was writing the book, I, I actually talked about this in the book, I, I found this study 
that went against what I was trying to argue in the book. So it purported to show that scout mindset makes you less successful in life, that having a realistic picture of the world makes you less successful. And so, of course, I read that you know headline of the study and my eyes kind of narrowed and I was like, all right, let's let's go to this methodology section and see if this stands up to my standards. And it didn't. It was actually a badly done study, um, which was was great. But then I kind of grudgingly did this thought experiment where I asked myself, suppose that I had found this exact same study with the same methodology, but the conclusion was the opposite. And it had shown instead that scout mindset makes you successful. What would my reaction have been in that world? And I realized, oh, in that case, I would have said, great, let's add this study to my list of things to talk about in the book. I'm going to spend three pages on it. Wait, this is like, do you just read the abstract and say like, yep, I'll put another footnote in about that. Which is basically what I had been doing right. about anything that kind of supported my thesis. And so it really, yeah, it made me realize I've I got to up my game for how skeptical or critical I'm being of things that support my view here. And so I had to go back through all of these studies I had bookmarked to put in the book and actually look at their methodology and and hold it to the same standards that I held the study that went against my view. And I ended up throwing out a lot of those studies and rewriting (laughs) parts of the book. But so my point is, you know, I when I was reading this study against Scout Mindset, I felt like I was being a really critical thinker. And I was, I was, you know, critically evaluating their methodology. The problem is just that, you know, if you're applying that standard of critical thinking asymmetrically and applying it much more to the things you don't want to believe, then you end up with this really biased set of beliefs. Uh, so, yeah. So I, I, to get back to your original question, I would say the the key first step is just starting to become more aware of all the ways in which you are actually unconsciously trying to defend your beliefs, even if you feel like you're being rational and and objective. Yeah. And the, and the point there, right, is it's it's not like it's not like the soldier is a dummy necessarily. Right. You can be this like really smart, well-informed soldier who has this huge stack of abstracts that you've read that support oh, your yeah. position and who has done deep dives into the appendix of every study that opposes your position. And right. so you can you can refute all the hostile studies. You can cite all this literature in support of you, but you're not evaluating it in a fair-minded way. You're not asking yourself. I was thinking about this with um, a lot of people in arguing about uh, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine pause mm-hmm. and, and up to their guns. And, you know, I, I so almost want to like ask everybody, like if what the FDA had said is because of blood clots in women under 50, we're pausing the vaccination for women under 50, but letting it go forward for men and older women. Mm-hmm. Like, would you have been on the same side, right? Like, are you just like a defender of the institution and the process and you don't like critics? So you're, you're suggesting that if the FDA's decision had been more nuanced in a reasonable way, that many people would still have reflexively objected to it? Or did I misunderstand you? Oh, no, no, no. What would have supported it? That, that the people who support the regulators like would support whatever it is they do. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. It's kind of a good robustness check. I mean, I'm see. not sure, you know, but that, at least but like that is the question you should be asking. Th- right? That's the exercise I would like everyone to, to right. go through on that. Right. Is like if the decision had come down differently, like, would you have a different judgment of it? Or even I mean, maybe you're just saying, I think we should defer to the regulators. Like, that's not a that's not a crazy opinion. But yeah. Every, well, sometimes people say that. But a lot of the time what people say is come on, you idiots, clearly this is a reasonable call for the experts to have made. Why would you think you know better? But what I suspect is actually going on, what I think you're hinting at, is that they're not really critically evaluating the experts' decision. They are, in fact, like what's driving their support of the decision is just reflexive support for those particular experts or that institution or expertise in general. And so they would have the same reaction, even if kind of regardless of what the content of the decision was, even if that's not the way they're phrasing their support. Is that right? And I was thinking about this myself, right? When it came out, you know, Biden was going to like delay the withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan, but like still have a firm deadline. My first instance was like, oh, that sounds reasonable. Uh-huh. But then I was like, well, okay. You know, it's like, I don't know. Like, I like Joe Biden. I like the idea of being reasonable. Yep. But then I was like trying to look at it and I was like, I actually don't understand. Like, why is this different from the Trump-May deadline? 
Like what, what was actually the point? And now I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm filled with doubts. Um, but it's really easy, you know, to just see somebody who you're like inclined to agree with Mm -hmm. and then just like come up with reasons why they must be right. Yep. Yeah. That's so the, the thought experiment that I mentioned a few minutes ago where I, I imagine reversing the conclusion. So they support Mm -hmm. instead of oppose my view or the other way around and then seeing how do I feel about this? The, the standard of evidence or the quality of evidence in this other world. That's one thought experiment. But the one you just described is another thought experiment that I use very often as well, which is the the double standard thought experiment mm-hmm. where I imagine if someone if someone from the other side or if someone who I like less or respect less made the exact same point or made the exact same judgment call, how would I react to it then? <laughs> another version of that that I do is that when someone who just sounds really reasonable to me, including like people with a British accent who just always sound reasonable to me no matter what they're <laughs> saying. <laughs> if they say say something and my reaction is, oh, that's a really reasonable point. That's I agree. I try repeating their words in my head in a different accent to see if it still sounds <laughs> just as accurate. <laughs> and uh, it often doesn't. I mean that. <laughs> I think that makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, there's certain like modes of presentation, right? That yeah. we, we associate with like thoughtfulness. So one thing, what I think is really like most new about your book is that I think that there's a lot of people who are like broadly aware that people are not even handed enough. They're not self-critical enough. They don't benchmark their beliefs rigorously enough because people like counterintuitive stories. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people are like, oh yeah, like it would be better to reason like Julia says, but actually that's like very punished, right? And in this like dysfunctional fallen world that we live in, like yeah. you're better off operating like a soldier. Um, and and you argue that that's not true, that this isn't just like shtick for you, but that like actually everybody should try to act like scouts. Yeah, that's, well, specifically my claim is that we undervalue scout mindset and we overvalue soldier mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, yeah, we underestimate the value that we can get from scout mindset relative to soldier mindset. Um, and also that these trade-offs that we think we face between thinking accurately and, and objectively on the one hand versus being, you know, confident and motivated and happy on the other hand, those trade-offs are not as real as people feel like they are. And all of these depressing trade-offs that people claim we face, like, oh, you can't, you know, you can't admit any uncertainty or no one will want to listen to you. Those are much easier to get around than we think. Uh, And that with just a little bit of extra strategicness about how you express yourself or how you think about your situation, you can kind of have your cake and eat it too. You can kind of be confident and influential while still having a very realistic picture of your situation and, and even saying as much to your audience. Okay, yeah, let's take a break and then let's talk about confidence. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that healthcare is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. 
They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions. Best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. discussion of confidence uh, in this book is really interesting and, and important because this is something people talk about all the time. I think we have the intuition that's, you know, like grounded in our, in our lived experience that confident people are more persuasive and that you don't want to deal with people who are seem super uncertain all the time. Uh, but also we know because like people aren't dumb. Like we know that everyone who's up there on TV and they're like, Trump's definitely going to lose. So like, Uh that's, that's not true. Right. Like we know that life is uncertain, that it's hard to predict events and that there's some kind of trade off between making these really definitive proclamations that sort of like seem charismatic or like you have a lot of self-confidence and trying to be scrupulous where it's like it's hard to say like a lot of things could happen a meteor might come tomorrow like who knows so you say there's like two different kinds of confidence at work here yeah so i acknowledge that it's true that displaying confidence is important to making people want to listen to you and making people want to follow you and look up to you as a leader or an expert but what i realized in researching the book is that people are conflating two different kinds of confidence. And for lack of better terms, I call them social confidence and epistemic confidence. So epistemic confidence is about how much certainty you have in your claims or how much certainty you express. So like if you said, you know, I'm I'm 100% sure that our business is going to succeed or I'm I'm absolutely positive that the Democrats are going to win, that's displaying very high epistemic confidence. And then social confidence is just about like how self-assured you are. Do you speak in a confident tone of voice? Do you have confident posture and body language? Um, Do you seem comfortable speaking to groups or just taking charge and making things happen? Those are all markers of social confidence. So those are two different things and they often go together, but they don't have to go together. And what I learned is that social confidence is actually much more important to influencing other people and making them see you as a leader than epistemic confidence is. And so I found a bunch of really interesting examples of prominent successful leaders who often speak with low epistemic confidence. Like they'll say, you know, I think there's only a 30% chance this plan is going to work, but they have a lot of social confidence. And so that's what people focus on and pay attention to. And everyone looks up to them and wants to follow them and work for them and just kind of doesn't pay attention to the fact that they often express or doesn't care about the fact that they often express low epistemic confidence. So I think this is a delightful discovery to make about how the world works, because like, if you want to be influential, you don't have to sacrifice your ability to see things clearly and notice when you can't justifiably be certain about something. You're still free to do that, and you can still be influential as long as you display social confidence. So I was delighted to discover that. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, one of your examples is like Jeff Bezos, right? Yeah. Apparently went around telling people that he thought he had a 30% chance of succeeding. That's right. All his early, yeah, his early investors, he would tell them. So this was something that he had thought about before deciding to quit his job on Wall Street and and start the company that would become Amazon. He was trying to kind of realistically ask himself, what is the probability that this company would end up successful? And I don't know exactly how he defined success, but you know, roughly speaking, (laughs) successful. And his estimate was about thirty percent, which he got by looking at kind of the base rate of success of tech companies in the 90s, which seemed to him to be about 10%. And then he was like, well, you know, I think I'm, I think I'm really smart and I have a good idea, but I still have to adjust upward from that baseline of 10%. And so maybe I have about a 30% chance. That was how his reasoning went. So you might assume that someone with that view, which is already kind of unusual for a founder to think probabilistically and have low epistemic confidence in their success, but you might assume that, okay, well, even if they are seeing things that way, they would never tell the public or tell investors that. But he did in all of his early pitch meetings to raise money for Amazon. He would say, you know, I think there's about a 70% chance that this is going to fail. So, you know, you shouldn't invest any money that you're not prepared to lose. And yet, clearly, he still managed to raise money and make Amazon a huge success. And people wanted to work for him and, and cover him in the media. 
And when you, you know, go back and look at the reasons that early investors gave for why they trusted him and wanted to invest in him, they point to signs of social confidence. Like, well, he just, he had so much charismatic energy that I just really wanted to work with him. Or, you know, he spoke with such passion about his vision for what he was trying to create or, or what an exciting time it was to start a new company in the early days of the internet. And so even though he said it wasn't a sure bet, I, I just, you know, I found his passion really inspiring. So uh, I think there's a lot of ways to inspire people and get them on board with your, your vision or your plan without having to promise something that you can't justifiably promise them. And part of it is that Bezos says there's a positive expected value to investing right. in my company, right. right? It's not based on being incredibly boastful about his odds of success, but on trying to persuade you that there is a big opportunity in internet commerce and right. that he has a chance of like seizing that opportunity. He's going to quit his job. Right. right. And like, you should risk your money with him. But it's it's risky. Like, he's not out there saying, like, this will definitely work. This 99 percent chance. Right. And and but then you, you so you can be confident that your course of action makes sense. Right. Without displaying like hubris in the precision that you, you can make these these judgments with. I, I think about um, Nate Silver. Uh, in this regard, because a lot of people find him to be obnoxiously overconfident by which I know, they isn't that mean, interesting? right. But what they mean by that is that he talks a lot of shit and he, <laughs> he wades into a lot of issues, right? Like, so yep. he has high social confidence, right? Yep. Like, he's not afraid to get into it with you or to get into it on weird subjects or stuff like or that. Or to like found a new media company and go out there and, you know, go on yeah. TV and give his to, opinion. To, to go from sports gambling to political prognostication. But if you look at his forecasts, right, right. like usually he is less confident than other analysts, at least in politics, which, which I know best. He is showing epistemic uncertainty while being a confident person. Who's exactly. like out there in the world, some, sometimes antagonizing people, sometimes people like it because it's entertaining. But like what you're talking about is not being overconfident in the predictions that you make and what he was saying about the 2020 election, which like turned out to be true, was that there's a lot of uncertainty about what the actual vote totals will be, but that Biden's lead in the polls is so big right. that even a very large error would result in him still winning. And like that's exactly what happened, but it was like a very low confidence uh, kind of forecast. Exactly. Yeah, there's kind of two related distinctions I was trying to draw here, one of which is the distinction between social and epistemic confidence. And the other is between when you express uncertainty, is that uncertainty a sign of your own ignorance or lack of expertise? Or are you talking about uncertainty that's just inherent to the topic or, or inherent to the fact that reality is messy? And And so I think there are a lot of cases where someone is technically expressing low epistemic confidence. Like they're saying, I think there's only a 30% chance this is going to succeed or, you know, whatever percent chance that Trump is going to win. But the way they explain, the way they express their position shows that they really just know their stuff. Like, so they're confident in their understanding of the situation, even though the situation is messy and hard to predict with certainty. Um, and so I think expressing your confidence in precise probabilistic statements, like I think there's a 37% chance <laughs> or whatever, does often paradoxically come across as arrogant to people, even though it's mm -hmm. low epistemic confidence, because I guess the implication is to have that much precision, you must feel like you've really studied this inside and out and you think this is the right level of confidence to have. And so that all that in its own way comes across as overconfident to some people, even though you're expressing low epistemic confidence, which I think is kind of ironic. I mean, there's something to that though, right? Like, so, you know, so I tried at the end of um, last year to do some probabilistic predictions to, to try to be like you. Um, but like, of <laughs> course, like I picked round numbers. Right. You know what I mean? Because like it seemed to me like it would be crazy for me to say, well, there's a 71% chance that Justice Breyer will retire. But like 70 seemed like a like a reasonable thing to uh -huh. say, right? <laughs> Which I mean, I guess like uh, it's a convention of speech, I think, in English that like 70% is more like 
70%, give or take. Whereas if I said like 71.2%, people uh-huh. would be like, what's this fucking asshole talking about, <laughs> right? Um, even though those are like very similar guesses, right? Um, but, you know, that that's a, I mean, and some of that, I guess, is because we have 10 fingers and, you know, we would have like a whole different attitude toward what kind of guesses are arrogant if we had 12 toes or something like that. Yeah, I, I'm, I don't know if I fully understand what's going on there, but I agree it's a real effect. And there's kind of an interesting question in probability theory or the philosophy of probability about whether it makes sense to talk about different, about uncertainty about your uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And on one view, that should just kind of collapse down into one point estimate that you give for your uncertainty. But I've always felt like it does make sense to have uncertainty about your uncertainty. And maybe the way, my, my best stab at expressing what that means is to express it in terms of how confident you are that your estimate would change in the future. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, like I think I'm a lot more confident when I say that the probability of getting a six when I roll a, a six-sided die is one-sixth. I feel like I have a lot of certainty about that probability. But if I say, I think, you know, there's a 20% chance that we get full self-driving cars in the next five years or something but I feel really uncertain about that 20%, that is a different kind of expression of uncertainty. And I, th- I think the reason why is that it seems totally possible to me that I could learn new information that would change my 20% on self-driving cars. But it seems very unlikely to me that I would get new information that would change my estimate of one-sixth on the die roll coming up six. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I, I was in a, a seminar um, that that Robert Nozick, the, the philosopher, taught. And while he was um, teaching, he got a terminal stomach cancer diagnosis. And the doctors told him, I think it was something like he had a 70% chance that he'd be dead within three months or, or something like that. And, you know, he was a real philosophy guy. He had a lot of equanimity about this. But what he expressed to us was frustration that the doctors could not elaborate if they were saying that there was like some biological fact such oh, that there yeah. was actually a 70% chance that he would die, or if there was some uncertainty as to what the actual situation was. Yeah, that's so interesting. Right? It's like, yeah. it's like, did they some would some hypothetical better microscope like clear this up, but they just don't have one? Or is it that they have a full understanding of how this cancer works and it just plays out that way seven times out of 10. But I mean, I, I did think that was true, right? I mean, when when people talk about these things, they are doing sort of pure backward-looking analysis of the frequency, right? And there are these, these other questions about like, what are you really trying to say about the state of our knowledge? Like if, right. you, if you rolled a die and it didn't come up, you know, one-sixth of the time on a five, you wouldn't say, oh, I guess my guess was wrong, you would say there's something wrong with this die. Right. Right. That, right. Like, Although in theory, my my guess should have been taken into account the chance that this di- there was something weird about this die. And I just thought that was really unlikely. Right. But yeah. I mean, what, what you would say you had learned about the world was that you'd learned that you were dealing with some loaded dice. Right. <laughs> right. Not that, not that you had misunderstood how, how dice work. Right. 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 Like, um, you know, so, somebody's cheating you, which is different from like the election takes a surprising twist. Right, exactly. Because, you know, these things just happen. Um, So in my line of work, though, I think people often feel like like we should be soldiers, that we are in a war. Like strategically. Yeah, that, you know, that that we're in a war of ideas and that if you think there's an 80 percent chance that Biden's jobs plan is good, Mm -hmm. that means you should want it to pass. Right. And since you want it to pass, what you should say is that there's a 100% chance that it's good. Right. Right? That to say 80% would be to betray like your own estimate of what's a good outcome for the world because informing people, you know, because the other side's not going to play fair, I guess. Right. Um and, you know, and like we're we're in it to win it here. Yeah. Yeah, so this feels a little bit analogous to to the idea of or or to the situation of talking about your startup success, where, you know, if you're talking to an audience that's basically reasonable and is not adversarial, so they're not, (laughs) you know, looking for a a reason to shoot you down, um, then 
I think you usually can succeed by by pointing out, look, this situation is is uncertain, and I can't be confident we're going to succeed, but I am confident that this is a bet worth taking. Or, or you know, I am confident that this, our plan, based on the information that we can get, is a, a better plan than the alternatives that we've been able to find. And those kinds of arguments are, I think, the honest case for taking these uncertain bets. And to a basically reasonable audience, like many investors, that is compelling. Um, the case you're talking about, where you're trying to persuade the public or you're trying to, I don't know, hold your own in a debate on a talk show, a political talk show, is a little different because I think the audience in those situations is less, they're less interested in what actually is true. Like the investor is putting their money in and so they actually do care <laughs> about whether they should invest in your company or not. The audience for the political talk show, I think a lot of them are, you know, they're listening for entertainment or for validation or or both um or you know to see the the other side shot down and and so in those cases i am more willing to say that the soldier approach is more effective um for, for, for those audiences if that's what you're optimizing for mm-hmm. but i also think that there are a lot of audiences or you know people that you might want to reach or persuade who are not already on board with what you're saying and there's a huge difference in the strategies that work for persuasion, depending on whether your audience is already sympathetic to you and just wants to hear you say what they want to hear, versus audiences that are starting out a little bit skeptical or critical of your side a priori. And for the latter, like downplaying or ignoring nuance or uncertainty is like the first thing that they're going to focus on, and they're going to use that to dismiss you. But if you kind of get in front of that and say, now, this isn't a sure thing. There are ways this could fail or, you know, there are, there are some downsides to this plan. I won't deny that. But and then you try to make the positive case that tends to be disarming um, mm-hmm. and that tends to make them much more open to the positive case you're making now that you've acknowledged that it's not 100%. I think that expresses really well why I hate um, debating things. Yeah. You know, people will suggest it all the time. They're like, you should debate so-and-so about something. Yeah, and I'm always too. like, eh. you know, because it's like when two people have pre-committed to a position and people want to watch a kind of like sport where you argue about who's right, you create a situation where the person who admits to some doubt is like going to quote unquote lose right the 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 argument it seems to me and like I did it once I did an intelligence squared debate about Amazon and books or something and um I'm totally right about this I, like, I, <laughs> like I promise you but like I would not say that these like doom scenarios that people on the other side were raising were like totally impossible right you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like it, it could be, it could be that they form this like world destroying monopoly, but then it's like, well, then I lost the argument. Right. But yeah, okay. Yeah. You know, if there's like a 2% chance that this thing happens and a 98% chance that it unfolds in like a different, much more beneficial way, then like the correct course of action is to like count on the more probable one when we're making our policy choices, right. which I think if you're just talking to a normal person, Right. It's like totally reasonable position. But in a debate, you've like you've exposed like you really do need a soldier in a debate. Yeah. The problem of trying to be intellectually honest and win a debate is a bit of a a bit of an impossible situation. And I think the answer is just to not do debates <laughs> or not do the typical <laughs> kind of debate. <laughs> I think right. there's I, I really like what I sometimes call undebates, where you have two people who are talking about their disagreement, but the goal is just to clarify their disagreement and clarify the cruxes of their disagreement rather than to have one side win. The, the traditional kind of debate, I just uh, that just seems awful and without any redeeming qualities to me. <laughs> but I guess if we have to have some people do it, then... Um... Well, so, but, that, but that, that's the point of, of clarifying, though, right? I mean, I guess... I mean, you're obviously a proponent of, of scouting, but... You do agree that in, the, in at least that kind of situation where it's like, well, we want two talking heads to come on television and debate this thing. Yep. That like, that's probably, I mean, we could say like, well, we wish people wouldn't do television segments like that. But given that they're currently an inescapable part of our world, then yeah. we should want people who do them to be soldiers. Yeah. I mean, I think I'd agree with that. Um, I would say that you probably want to be a scout at least beforehand when you're not 
on the stage itself or on the air. You want to be a scout about at least, you know, what is going to be persuasive to the audience I'm trying to persuade. Uh, and I think oftentimes people who are in soldier mindset, they don't have a good understanding of what is an actually effective point to make or, or, or persuasion strategy. So some scout mindset about that at least can be helpful. But yeah, if we're just talking about the strategy to adopt that will be most effective in, you know, a typical political debate or talk show, then I don't think I can really maintain that it would be an intellectually honest one. <laughs> well, maybe you need, you need, you know, a, a good scout can help you uh, decide like which hills you want to soldier on, right? No, exactly. Yeah. I mean, th this comes up uh, in a lot of conversations I've read with lawyers where they're talking about how it's, it's a common misconception that lawyers should be soldiers and should just totally believe that their side is morally and legally correct and that that, that conviction is going to help them win uh, mm -hmm. their cases in the courtroom. And anecdotally, and based on at least one study that I've read, lawyers who are more convinced that their side is morally and legally correct are less likely to win in the courtroom. The study I'm referring to was a study of a moot court uh, mm -hmm. case in a a law school classroom where they assigned the sides of the case randomly, which is nice because th that allows us to isolate out the effect of people just choosing to make arguments that they already believe. So they assigned the sides randomly and then asked students, how confident are you that your side is morally correct and that the judge will agree that it's legally correct? And there was a strong correlation between which side you were assigned and which side you thought was morally and legally correct, which is already interesting in its own right. But then even more interesting was the researchers could look at how the students actually performed in the moot court case. And there was actually a negative correlation between thinking your side was morally and legally right and winning the case, um, huh. which you could explain in different ways. But I think one pretty plausible explanation is that the more confident you are that, well, of course, my side is right and everyone will be able to see that, the less careful you are about identifying what are the weak points that the other side is going to push on in the courtroom, what are the arguments I could make that actually would convince people who are not already on board with my position. Yeah, th those things just kind of are less visible to you if you're already convinced you're right. Uh, and that just comes back to bite you in the courtroom. So I think that that's a big parallel to what you were talking about. Yeah, no, I mean, that makes sense. You know, and I was talking to a friend who does uh, sort of public interest appellate litigation, and he's got a good track record in, in court. But, you know, he was saying, like, you have no idea how many cases that, like, I sympathize with that like I don't take because like they're not actually strong cases. Oh, where he sympathizes with the client but doesn't think their case is actually strong. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, like I he doesn't want to have a hundred percent win rate because that means he's not actually trying hard enough on on be on behalf of people. Oh, good for him. That's a nice way to think about it. You don't want to waste people's time with hopeless claims just because you think in, like in some sense, you would like them to win, right? Like right. If, it, if there's no reasonable prospect of success, you know, he, he doesn't think you should do it. But so, I mean, I think he comes into court very confident, but that's because he's like trying to screen at an earlier stage, right? And exactly. like not not show up with with weak stuff. Uh, we should take another break, uh, but but I I want to come back to this. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. So I want to talk about arguing on the internet, uh, uh -huh. <laughs> which which I enjoy. Um, and who doesn't? <laughs> well, I think a lot of people don't. <laughs> well, they say they don't, but then they keep doing it, so I'm suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> well, some people do, yeah. Uh, and I I just kind of wonder, like, 
it feels to me, even though I do really enjoy arguing on the internet, like it's um like Twitter in particular mm-hmm. is like designed to trick you into like investing your identity strongly in like weird positions that you uh-huh. haven't necessarily thought that hard about. How so? Well, because because it's like, you know, because it's so casual, right? So, like, you can just say something. Like, you might in life, right? Like, you, you just say stuff to people you're socializing with without, like, having researched it a ton. But then suddenly you get all kinds of pushback from different people. And, like, a lot of them are annoying. Or the arguments they make aren't any good. So right. now it's like, all right, here's what I'm doing now. Right? Yep. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> this thing that I barely cared about before is now the most important thing for me to defend right. in life. Yep. Well, also because like in real life, I try not to spend a lot of time socializing with people who I find deeply annoying. Right. So if somebody tells me like, hey, man, like, I don't think that's right. I'm like, well, fair enough. I respect you. We're good friends, you know, yeah. and I'm reasonable about it. But like the Internet's full of assholes. Yeah. Um, and it's like so easy to get hung up on that. Right. Because you're like out there in this zone of strangers. Yeah. Uh, preoccupied with with idiots um, and I feel like it's really bad it, it is and I feel now that you've described it that resonates with me a lot and I've tried to counter it honestly because I just it can be such a time and emotion sink for me to get invested in these arguments that that don't actually affect anything in the real world um, and that are don't have much of a plausible shot at going anywhere productive but they just they they just hook you in for the reasons that you described and um you know i think one thing that helps a little bit is that i have tried to cultivate this is a longer term solution but i have tried to cultivate an audience that respects me for ignoring trolls uh-huh. like i there have been a few times where i've given in and just argued with someone who is making obviously bad faith arguments and several of my followers jumped in there were like julia what are you doing this is not worth your time like why are oh, you you're better than that why are you doing this yeah exactly <laughs> and i felt a little bit embarrassed they were like yeah. and i was like yeah i am i should be better than that um <laughs> and so i think what you expect just unconsciously expect your audience to reward you for or punish you for has a huge impact on what you feel tempted to do and so Again, as I say, this is a longer term solution, but uh Well so but you you tell the story of this like true Twitter hero who makes a tweet about sexist use of her job title and like gets all this engagement and then admits she was wrong. Yes. I, I love that story. I, I'm such a fan of hers. She's a science journalist and she she tweeted a few years ago. I'm not gonna remember the tweet exactly, but it was the bit the gist was you know, Monday morning, I sit down to check my email and I have two emails from scientists who I reached out to for interviews. Uh, one is male and and that email to me begins, dear Ms. Brookshire. The other scientist is female and that email goes, dear Dr. Brookshire. And Bethany Brookshire explains that, you know, in her email signature, in every email she sends, it says, you know, Bethany Brookshire, PhD. She has a PhD in science, uh, some scientific topic. and uh, And so she says, you know, this isn't a 100% pattern, but it's a very clear correlation between male scientists not recognizing my PhD and female scientists do recognize it. So she tweeted this and the tweet kind of went viral. And a lot of people chimed in saying, yes, thank you. This is this is also my experience. Thank you for pointing it out. And so the validation and the support felt really good. But Bethany, you know, because she really does pride herself on being a scientist and being empirical and intellectually honest, she started to feel kind of bad because she had made this claim about a pattern that existed. And yet she had the data in her inbox, you know, in her archives that she hadn't actually checked before making this claim. And so she just kept thinking, shouldn't I check to see if this pattern actually exists? And so she ran the numbers. She collected all the emails from scientists and classified them into male or female and looked at and then, you know, recorded what greeting they used for her and there actually was no correlation. Um, well, there, there was, but in the opposite direction from what she had claimed. Uh, and it was a very weak correlation anyway. So male scientists were slightly more likely to recognize her uh, PhD than female scientists were. But again, the data were very sparse. And so she wrote a follow-up tweet a week later saying, hey, guys, sorry, but that tweet from last week was actually wrong. I ran the numbers and looks like the pattern that I thought existed doesn't exist. Uh, sorry about that. And probably less viral, though. It's 
uh, it was not as viral as the first tweet. That's true. Right. <laughs> it got a lot of support. Well, that's good. But like, can you imagine if someone had taken issue with her first tweet? Like the amount of shit you would get? Yeah. If you'd like, like some obnoxious, you know, sea lion facts man, quote unquote, <laughs> just asking questions. If I'd been up there and been like, well, is that really true? Did you check the data? Like, people would be like, that's like the worst thing you could ever do. It's one of the hardest situations in which to consider the possibility that you might be wrong, because not only do you have this super annoying person arguing with you and giving bad arguments against you, but also you have these followers who are standing up for you against this person and kind of kind of banking on the fact that, of course, you are right and and they're just assuming that and fighting for you. And so then to have to say, sorry, guys, actually, I wasn't right and you were defending the wrong side is just so painful. <laughs> Um, I actually, I tell a story in my book about someone who succeeded in doing this really hard thing. He wrote a blog post about sexy female scientists, and he got a bunch of pushback um, from people who said this was sexist of him. And he wasn't convinced by their criticisms. And a bunch of other people defended him and said, no, this was fine. You're just making too big of a deal out of it. And this debate kind of raged for about a week across lots of different blogs. This was back in, I don't know, 2011 or something. And, uh, and then eventually the blogger returned and said, you know what? I wasn't convinced before, but I actually read some arguments that I think made really good points. And now I think my original post was sexist. And so, you know, I, I withdraw it. And I'm sorry to all of the many people who tried to defend me, but now I actually disagree with you. And so I saw this back in 2011. And I thought this was so cool that A, the blogger had not caved into social pressure initially because he still thought he was right. Um, and B, that he had changed his mind in response to what he thought were strong arguments and was willing to say sorry to everyone who was trying to defend me, but I actually changed my mind. So I thought that was so cool that I uh, messaged him on Facebook and was like, I thought this was fantastic. And I you know, read your blog and I think you're really thoughtful and truth seeking. Um, he's like, oh, thanks. I, I find your blog the same. And uh, fast forward 10 years and we're now engaged. That, uh, his name is Luke Melhauser. And um, so Scout Mindset brought us love is the moral of that story. <laughs> That's a great story. Um, but I mean, but part of what makes that a great story is it's, it's kind of unusual. Right. I mean, it's a yeah, I don't want to guarantee the same results for everyone. I guess I should clarify. I know just but you know, I I also find that a lot of times in that situation, um, I mean, there's like so many ways that can go awry. Uh, but like one of them is then like people not um accepting the apology or it's like held against you forever. Whereas like yeah. if you stuck with your guns, you would at least have like the half the people who were supporting you would be on your side. But if you're like, oh, you know what? Like I thought this through and like, actually I was wrong. Then it's just like, nobody's happy. Right. You're just <laughs> like, you're just like still the guy who, you know, you're still the person who was wrong to the people yeah. who criticized you. And now you're not on the team anymore um, to the to the people who were who were on your side. Right. Uh, there's not it's not a super welcoming atmosphere. Yeah. I mean, that is. Yeah. That That's why I, I say it's <laughs> one of the hardest situations in which to actually change your mind and tell people that you change your mind. But I, I do think that you even if you end up worse off in that particular situation, um, which you sometimes do, I do think you're investing in your future ability, in your future credibility, because you know, you do develop a reputation, at least among the many people who care to some extent about this stuff. You develop a reputation for not just always sticking to your guns for the sake of sticking to your guns and being willing to say when you were wrong if you think you were. And so when you stick to your guns in the future, it's all the more credible because you've shown that you don't just do that indiscriminately. So, you know, again, that's not what every every single person cares about. Some people just want the person who's going to champion their views and never back down online. But in my experience, a lot of people do care about the the credibility issue. So you kind of just have to choose which audience you want to optimize for um, and accept that you're not, you can't appeal to every type of person at the same time. And so I prefer optimizing for the audience that at least cares to some extent about my credibility, um, but someone else might make a different choice. So, you know, one of your sort of premises, right, is that like most people at least like think that we're trying to think clearly 
or, you know, want to say that we are. Right. Um, and are maybe sort of self, self-deceiving. I feel like there's been some movements lately to almost like explicitly go in the other direction. Like I think about the invocation to like, quote unquote, read the room. Oh, God. When, 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 Is when there you any say more that- annoying Twitter response than read the room? It seems annoying to me, um, but you know, but like a, a sense that like it is like actually bad to be dissonant in any way, and that like that's not you know like good good citizenship or something like that. My sense when people say read the room or things like that is that they it's not that they think you have a fair point but just shouldn't say it. Um, it's that they they think you're very wrong and should not be publicly wrong (laughs) like that. Uh, Is that Hmm. not your impression? I mean, I guess another way of it is that like, like the idea that somebody is just asking questions Uh is this like trope, right? It's like an attack on someone to characterize them that way. Like so-and-so is quote unquote, just asking questions. Yeah, exactly. And the point being that, no, they're actually spewing their hateful speech or something, but under the guise of asking questions? Yeah, well, I mean, that that it's, I, I mean, I don't know exactly what it is, but that, that, that like the, the discourse situation is such that to question people's positions, at least on like certain topics, is itself like an affront, right? And like, that's why like they have failed to read the room and that like the room ought to all come attack you. And like, we shouldn't have any kinds of argument. I mean, basically, like, we should be soldiers. Yeah. Right? That like, we are in a constant war of some kind and, you know, like, can't, can't afford any chinks in the, in the chain of solidarity. Right. I mean, I'm definitely familiar with the phenomenon you're describing. <laughs> I, I have a few thoughts about that. One is that, this is something you've written about on Slow Boring, um, and yeah. I, I've tweeted about a bit as well, that I can't tell whether the change over the last decade or so is a change in people's views on procedure. Like, you know, to what extent is it appropriate to raise disagreement or point out caveats or something? Um, that would be a procedural question versus a change in just the substance of people's beliefs about what is right or wrong. And it seems to me more the latter that people, uh, they have the same views on procedure as they always did, but the range of what is considered a correct opinion or the range of what is considered an opinion that a reasonable person could hold is has gotten narrower. Uh-huh. Uh, and so the the strong reactions that people have when you express a view that they think is wrong, it's not so much because they disagree with you about procedure, but because their view of what a reasonable person could possibly believe without being a terrible person or a bigot or a you know uh-huh. a troll is is quite small and your view is outside of that. And so they're having the same reaction that people would have, you know, 15 years ago to a much more extreme opinion. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean it is true. I'm I'm actually trying to imagine how I would react to someone who in 2021 wrote a blog post about 14 sexy scientists. Right. And like I'm not sure I would even bother with an argument. Yeah, well, that's that? maybe a dispositional thing but for I'm, you. No, but I'm people... actually, but I'm more sympathetic to it as a story about 2011. Like, I just, I feel like, it's not that like it was like right in the past, but wrong now. But I feel like the, like, like the culture has moved certain kinds of activities into like a zone of like, I can't imagine why anybody would do that at all. Yeah. Versus like, I don't know, a lot of people are doing this stuff and I don't think it's great. Yeah. I don't know. I'm kind of sympathetic to people who are who don't accept someone's claim to be honestly asking questions or trying to argue in good faith, even though I find it annoying when they refuse to believe you, <laughs> just because so many people are, in fact, using that as a fig leaf, you know, to disagree in bad faith. So they might say, you know, I'm just I'm just curious and then follow up with something that shows that actually they're not really curious at all. They're just angry and want to complain. Like, right. you know, I'm, I'm just curious how. Uh, you know, Democrats could fail to realize that such and such. Like, no, you're not curious. You just want to complain about how stupid <laughs> Democrats are. Right. And so I think it's actually quite important to 
have a track record of being open-minded and arguing in good faith, if you have that track record, then people are much more willing to to read your each new individual tweet that you make. They're more willing to read that sympathetically. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can't actually have a track record of being of arguing in bad faith and then want people to believe you when you say this time, no, I'm asking questions in good faith. Right. Um, so it's a longer project <laughs> of, of being able to raise controversial questions or make controversial arguments and not have everyone jump on you and refuse to listen to you. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I think about like, you know, I've got um comment section on, on my blog and it's good yeah. and it's, you know, it is good, o- actually. only, only, only good. paying members can be in there. But oh, I think why. all the time, the riffraff. yeah, well, it's, I mean, yeah. And, and I, I think all the time about like, you know, what do I have to do with that? Like what kind of quote unquote policies right. do I need? And, you know, it occurs to me all the time that it's like, of course, I don't want people making like violent threats or being like absurdly vulgar or something. On the other hand, like if somebody once in the midst of an impassioned debate is like, fuck you, uh-huh. I don't think that's so bad in the scheme of things. But I don't want people in there who are, as you say, just like constantly doing bad faith arguing, right? Like yeah. you don't want people who are in there kind of acting like, I don't know, like like sleazy lawyers. Uh-huh. But it's hard. It's hard to think of like a rule against that because the nature of it is that like any one post would be totally fine, right? It's it's the context. It's that if week in, week out, you're like trying to drag every argument back to like, shouldn't we all be more racist? And I'm like, <laughs> I don't like, don't do that, right? Like, don't, don't, don't be in there. But it's that's like that's what's more important, I feel like, than any like sharp guideposts to have like a a quality discussion environment yeah i agree this is so well put because that's that's the rule that i use to judge people in real life or just in general is kind of you know you can't focus on any one particular case do i think they're being reasonable in this one particular case but just in general have they shown a willingness to at least sometimes change their mind or acknowledge that the other side has a point or avoid overstating their case. Do they do that stuff at least sometimes that I'm willing to, mm-hmm. you know, be sympathetic to them and, and listen to them? But yeah, in any given case, and this is so hard when you're moderating a comment section with hundreds or thousands of people because you can't set aside the problem of having rules that are legible to other people. There's there's also just the problem of how do you keep track of who's operating in good faith in general versus bad faith in general. It's really hard. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> but I mean, there, there are some one-off cases that I've seen where I felt it was appropriate to block someone for a one-off case where, so I I have some unofficial rules on like my Facebook threads or my Twitter threads, and you could actually have official rules. This was something Mm -hmm. that a unusually successful subreddit I talk about in the book called FemRA Debates did to keep their debates about feminism and men's rights from becoming a giant dumpster fire. (laughs) They just set some official guidelines for how you are supposed to engage. And one of the guidelines was you're not allowed to make generalizations where you say, you know, all feminists believe such and such, or all men's rights activists believe such and such. Um, And you're not allowed to make assumptions about what the person you're talking to believes. Like, you know, well, you're a feminist, therefore you, you must support such and such. Because that kind of behavior tends to make these discussions just uh, spiral downwards Mm -hmm. into (laughs) despair. (laughs) Um, So, you know, if you have guidelines like that, then it might be easier in one-off cases to say, you know, sorry, but you're violating this guideline that we have. But that might just be too much work for you. I would be sympathetic to that. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I no, but you know, it's something to work toward. I think in the in the longer run. Yeah. The other thing, you know, that that I was thinking about in the subject of sort of like bad faith is that in a weird way, I feel like accusations of bad faith can like become their own, almost just like like black hole like i both think it's like super important to like find ways to like brush off and ignore and exclude people who are not participating in discussions in yep. good faith but also that everyone like smart people are always looking for um like A way to game the system and and rationalizations yeah yep. so you're like oh well that's not good faith right and then you're like <laughs> no i don't know <laughs> like people just disagree like there's just a wider range of disagreement I'm like almost anything yeah. than people want to believe. Like there's, 
hundreds of millions of people in this country. And like, yeah, people yeah. just disagree. I agree. And to make matters worse, there's also, I think, good faith disagreement about what counts as good faith. So, you know, I think for some people, arguing in good faith requires you to kind of stifle your emotions and to not mm-hmm. show that you're angry about someone's view on a topic. And for other people, the anger is is authentic and to stifle mm-hmm. it is unrealistic and unfair. And I think that's a reasonable disagreement over what counts as good faith that I've become more sympathetic right. to. Because I used to be more in the former camp where if someone showed that they were angry, then I would immediately be like, well, you're, you clearly don't want to have a reasonable conversation, so I'm not going to try. Uh, and, and I've become somewhat more persuaded that, nah, I guess that's a that's an internally consistent system that would work mm-hmm. if people followed it. And even though I might not like it, I, I think it's valid. So sometimes I'll, I'll just ask myself, if everyone followed the policy that this person is following, would that actually work? Uh, mm-hmm. And in the emotion case, I think it probably would. But in other cases, I think that thought experiment kind of shows that the person's the person doesn't genuinely believe this is a good faith way to argue. They're just trying to troll you under just the guise of good stuff faith. Out there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I don't know, the people who say, well, you have to read every single study that I cite on this topic or else you're showing that you you lost yeah. the argument or something like that is not actually feasible. We couldn't actually follow that policy. It would be impossible. And so I, I don't actually believe that person that they genuinely think that's uh, the standard of yeah. good faith. If that distinction makes sense. Okay, um, I think we should, should wrap this up. But okay. you know, I want to. I want to <laughs> leave talk people forever with the about internet arguments. <laughs> if you let there's, me, there's always a lot. There's a lot to be said. So this is a really good book. Um, and Thank I will you. say to uh, the audience out there, it made me feel more optimistic uh, about things um, that you know. It's not just a. It, it's it's not a scoldy book or a like tragic book where well we're going to be like too good for everyone else and in this fallen world there's like no realm for sound arguments that like it makes you think that you should try harder to reason correctly and see the world as it is and be more persuasive be more rigorous with your thinking and it will actually benefit you um so i think that's really good and uh, thank you so much, Julie Galef, uh, for being on the show. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors, our producer, Eric Janakis, and the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on home mom? <laughs> no. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower.